remember that in whatever business you're in, what you're ultimately there to do, which is to serve the guest and not your ego. With every choice you make, it's not about look at what I can do, but it's about how you make people feel, those you work with, as well as those you serve. And once you've identified that, the next time you find yourself pursuing one of those people, just try being a bit more unreasonable. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Guest Experience Show brought to you by Roller, the modern all-in-one venue management software for the leisure and attractions industry. I'm your host, Josh Liebman, and on this show, I'll be speaking with thought leaders in the global attractions industry about all things guest experience. We'll talk about industry trends, technology, removing friction, and how to grow your business by focusing on all aspects of guest experience, including the best ways to attract and engage new guests, delivering a remarkable experience, and building repeat visitors and advocates to your business. Will Gadera is the founder of Thank You, a hospitality company that develops world-class destinations and helps leaders across industries transform their approach to customer service. He is also the former co-owner of 11 Madison Park, which in 2017 was ranked the number one restaurant in the world. In this interview, Will shares insights from his new book, Unreasonable Hospitality, where he shares the importance of taking ordinary transactions and turning them into memorable experiences. Will believes everyone can be in the hospitality business, regardless of industry, because we all focus on creating human connections. In order to operationalize these types of experiences, Will talks about the role of Dreamweaver at 11 Madison Park, whose sole responsibility was to seek opportunities to exceed expectations. When asked how to justify the costs with creating incredible experiences, Will says that you should manage 95% of your finances like a maniac and spend the remaining 5% foolishly. Now, please enjoy this interview with Will Gadera. Hey, Will, welcome to the Guest Experience Show. I am so excited to have you on the podcast and really looking forward to our conversation. How are you? Doing really well, man. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I really can't wait to, to just dive into this. So, uh, so Will, I, I read your book. I've uh, you know been, been researching you and your background, but for those who might not be familiar, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, just a, a quick overview of the background of your career. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I'm a restaurant guy. I've been in the restaurant business my entire life. My dad was a lifelong restaurateur, so I grew up in it. Um, my dad was also my hero growing up. So honestly, whatever he did for a living probably would have ended up being the thing that I wanted to do for a living. It just so happened that I fell in love with restaurants. I used to go to work with him all the time when I was a kid because, well, anyone who knows anyone that works restaurant hours, if you want to have a relationship with your dad and he works in the restaurant business, you go to the restaurant. And it was just the magic of those rooms, the, the frenetic, chaotic energy, the, the fact that within the walls of each one of his restaurants was this incredibly loud heartbeat of life. And I, I was just always drawn to it. My dad was also an extraordinary 
I mean, he's he's still alive, <laughs> but he was an extraordinary dad to me in the way that he groomed me through my career, through um, through his, and it's a word I use often, intention. Um, my dad always raised me in a very intentional way and always encouraged me to pursue my career in a very intentional way. To the point that when I was 12 years old, he sat down with me and said, hey, Will, it's time to put together your three goals in life. That was kind of my dad's approach to everything. And I know this because he gave what we wrote together back to me about 10 years ago. Um, and on that list, I wanted to go to Cornell to the School of Hotel Administration, which I did. I wanted to open my own restaurant in New York City, which I did. And I wanted to marry Cindy Crawford, um, which I didn't, but I, I think I, I did even better there. Um, and honestly, from that point forward, I just worked in restaurants. I worked at some of the greatest restaurants in the country, whether it was Drew Nearprince, Tribeca Grill, or Wolfgang Puck's Spago, or all of Danny's restaurants, um, Danny Meyer, before ultimately buying the restaurant 11 Madison Park from him and then using that as the foundation of the company that I went on to build, which is called Make It Nice. And we had restaurants across the country and in London. And um, I sold that company at the beginning of 2020, just before COVID. Um, and we're most well known for 11 Madison Park, which when I got there, it was a middling brasserie. And by the time I sold the company, it had been named the number one restaurant in the world. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the phrases that, uh, that just kind of piqued my interest that you said was chaotic energy in a restaurant. And, uh, if, if you were to, to ask any, any restaurant guests, do you go to a restaurant because of chaotic energy? They'd, they'd probably say no, but I, I've heard people use this metaphor when referring to restaurants or really a lot of other areas of hospitality as, as a duck going along a pond that it, you, you see the, you see the duck and it's, it's graceful and it's elegant and it's very smooth and it glides. And what you don't see is a lot of the chaotic energy that's happening underneath the surface of the water, the aggressive paddling. Is, is that what you mean by the, the chaotic energy is, is kind of the, the areas that maybe the guest doesn't see that make it look like everything is running perfectly smoothly? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, on, on the serving side, behind the scenes, no two days are alike. and. I would always say like no guest left behind, no matter what happens, you work and you do whatever it takes to right a wrong or to just get the trains running on time and, and all of that. Like I'm drawn to that. I, yeah. I'm i a perfectionist and I like to create environments and experiences that are as close to perfect as possible. But restaurants in their most fully realized form are all about human connection and human beings are inherently imperfect. and. That's what breeds a lot of that chaos. It's just managing through imperfection to create moments that resemble some amount of perfection. But I think the other part of it is I've always believed that if you walk into a restaurant, you can close your eyes and listen to it. And there's a hum that tells you whether it's a good service or a bad service. And that hum, for me, represents some of that chaotic energy. The idea that at one table, you could have a couple celebrating their first anniversary, a table over, it's a father and son reconnecting 
after years apart, another table is just a group of friends and all of these different emotions and energies brought into the same room by definition is somewhat chaotic, but in the most mm -hmm. profoundly beautiful of ways because it just represents all of life's experiences happening at the same time. Wow, that, thank you for, for sharing that. That's very well said and, and, and really ties into actually uh, uh, one of the, the first things that I wanted to, to talk to you about. Uh, your most recent book, Unreasonable Hospitality, came out in October of 2022. I read it, I loved it, I, it was unbelievable. Uh, you, you really make the case for the fact that anyone can be in the hospitality industry. So taking this kind of chaotic energy in a, in a restaurant, but then really talking about the, the profound experiences that you have and the particularly the memorable experiences. Uh, so anyone can be in the hospitality industry by taking ordinary transactions and turning them into memorable experiences. That's what uh, that's basically the, the case that you're making. Uh, would love it if you can share more into, into that specific mindset. Yeah, I mean, listen, my, my hope for the book was obviously that people in my industry would connect with the ideas and those who perhaps already understood those ideas intuitively that this would help them put some intention to them or just give them some different words to help articulate their aspirations and the things they were endeavoring to accomplish. But my greater hope was that it would be embraced by industries outside of restaurants and hotels, outside of the classic hospitality industry, because, I mean, listen, I believe that, listen, America used to be a manufacturing economy. Now we're a service economy and dramatically so more than three quarters of our GDP is in the service industries. Globally, it's, it's more than two thirds. Um, that means that statistically speaking, we all do the same thing for a living. We are in the business of serving other people. Yet, so many people relegate their, their time and their energy and their efforts only for the product they're serving and not how they make people feel when that product is being served. And yet, I also believe that the companies that put people and hospitality at the center of every decision are those that will separate themselves from the pack. I don't care if you're in the insurance business or the car rental business or the financial services business. We all have the ability to impact people in a positive way just by making the choice to be a bit more intentional and creative in, in how we make them feel and giving them a sense of belonging and giving them a memory that can last a lifetime, which when done well, not only strengthens the culture of the company for all the people that work there, not only does it make the people you're serving happier and more likely to be lifelong customers, not only does it build your bottom line because if you lower turnover, you increase retention, you keep your customers desperately wanting to continue patronizing your business. Um, but it also can just make the world a nicer place. I, I like to talk about how we can encourage people to do what's good by convincing them that it's good for them, that selflessness can also be selfish. 
And I think hospitality is one of the best ways to achieve that because I do believe that approaching your business through the lens of hospitality is good for the business, but it's also good for the world. I do believe that investing time and energy and creativity and giving other people gifts is great for the people receiving those gifts, but it's also great for the people giving them because I don't believe there's anything more energizing than seeing the look on someone else's face when they receive a gift you're responsible for giving them. And I think that every single industry, if they look hard, they'll start to find opportunities for unreasonable hospitality all around them and seizing on as many of those opportunities as they possibly can. Well, I just believe it has the capacity to be transformational. Absolutely. 100%. I, Will, are there any stories that you love to tell? I know that there are stories that, that you'd love to tell, but curious if, if you can pick maybe one or two uh, stories that really exemplify unreasonable hospitality. And, and I'll give you options here. And this can be an and or. It can be from the book, aka from restaurant and hospitality space, uh, but also would love to give the opportunity to, to share unreasonable hospitality in, uh, in, a, in a product or in, a, in an otherwise transactional situation. You know, it's fun. Right now, I'm, I'm actually on on Instagram, I'm sharing stories of unreasonable hospitality that other people are sending to me. I do believe that the more you tell these stories, the more people out there are inspired to want to bring more of it into the world. And um, and so I have a lot of them right now, things that have happened for me or um, things that have just been recently communicated to me. And so I'll steer clear of things that we did at the Love Madison Park. I'm just going to tell stories of other people right now. Um, the story I just actually read yesterday is there was this this guy who was opening this uh, grill your own steakhouse concept in Sacramento. So there's a restaurant story, and it was opening week, and their bartender um, busy night, right? Like opening week, you know this, you've done this. Opening week is a busy week, but there was this couple, this older couple, celebrating their 40th anniversary, and the bartender Alec just took an interest to them and decided to spend the night amidst the business, trying to learn as much as he could about them. Um, and in doing so, learned that it was their 40th anniversary and learned that um, their first dance at their wedding was to a Van Morrison song. And so he calls his manager over and he goes, hey, I need you on my cue, turn the lights down, turn on the disco ball and play this Van Morrison song. And so the manager obliges because he was swept up in his enthusiasm and Alec, the bartender, stands up on one of the bar stools and says to the entire restaurant, like, everyone, everyone quiets the whole restaurant and says, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. and Mrs. Smith, almost like one would do at a wedding. Mm -hmm. That song went on. The couple danced. The whole restaurant was completely silent. At the end of the song, they kissed one another. And then everyone in the restaurant applauds, half of them in tears. They stayed there the rest of the night. Everyone in the restaurant came up and congratulated them. There they were in a room full of strangers, but it felt like they were at their wedding reception nearly half a century after it happened the first time. That for me is unreasonable hospitality and it demonstrates a bunch of different things. A, Alec was present enough with them to learn something about them. And then he cared enough about them to do something with that information. Um, they took what they were doing seriously. They were opening a restaurant that is still there today. So they've obviously done a great job, but they didn't take themselves too seriously. 
that they couldn't interrupt the night and just do something ridiculous and fun and meaningful. And they understood that if hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but a unique individual. Because in unreasonable hospitality, one size fits one. That gesture was crafted specifically for them. But it also reinforces the idea that unreasonable hospitality is not about giving more. It's about being more thoughtful. Um, and it's about choosing to go a little bit further to create the kind of gesture that will sit with someone for a lifetime. Um, I loved that story. But I'll give you another one. I, I got a colonoscopy the other day. I'm at that age. It's time to go start doing that stuff. And whether you know anything about colonoscopies, you can't eat for a couple of days, right? The whole thing, like that's the, the, the entire idea. But at the end, you're kind of starving and you're coming to and you're a little hazy because you were just under. And they give you graham crackers, Ritz crackers, and apple juice. That's like the food that you're allowed to eat right afterwards. They knew I was in the restaurant business. Someone there must have either read the book or something. And the nurse came out with, it was just on a copy paper, eight and a half by 11 this like menu that she wrote as if it was from a fancy French restaurant that said Le Ritz crackers from Nabisco <laughs> farms. Uh, like, at, like just the most hilarious thing. Like there's no reason that someone should be laughing out loud about Ritz crackers and graham crackers after just having had a colonoscopy. But this woman decided to make me feel seen to give me a reason to laugh and to give me a story to tell about that experience that was far better than any other story I could have told about that experience. Yeah. Here's the thing, it, it doesn't happen nearly as often as it could, and yet it happens everywhere if you have your eyes open wide enough to see it. How do you take both of these stories and operationalize them because this is something you talk about in in the book of of this is this is now just part of what we do you know you you take the the first example you know opening a restaurant the amount of you know the, the size of the checklist right of, of just like what's going on like i i need to make sure i am i am hitting all these things just just to operate just to be here right let alone do something unbelievable for this couple who's celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary so it, it, you know opening a restaurant opening a new venue of any kind it's a lot of there, there's kind of a lot of a lot of chaotic energy sometimes for good sometimes you know sometimes for for stress <laughs> and trying to keep everything moving and even during normal operations there's so much that's happening that so many balls in the air that you need to keep them in air just to just to meet expectations so how do you take the it, it's one thing to think of those ideas of just like oh i'd love to be able to do this but this table needs me over here this person needs me over here this employee is pulling me this way to to be able to actually just make that one of the things that you were doing let's say a couple things first of all even the way that like this table needs me over there this table needs me over there this employee is pulling me this way I think oftentimes when two, when leaders think about this too often, they are limiting the capacity of the operation by looking only at their own capacity. Unreasonable hospitality starts with recognizing that 
ownership over the concept needs to, in order for it to work, be shared with everyone on the team. When you open a restaurant, there are a few people at the top of the hierarchy that are overly burdened with like very, very long to-do lists. And there are a bunch of other people who are just following the rules that those people create and serving the products that those people designed. Those people are thirsty to have more ownership and to bring more of their creativity to the picture. And when given the opportunity to, A, not only does the bandwidth of the operation increase dramatically, but everyone is more dialed into seeing it succeed because the moment you empower your team, the moment in a restaurant that the servers are no longer just serving plates of food that someone else created, but imbuing the experience with their own creativity, the experience becomes better because I've never met a single individual who won't give more of themselves to help something be great than when they feel they have some small hand in determining what that thing is. So that's one. Two, it's one thing to give your team permission to do cool stuff. You also need to back it up with resources uh, because an idea without resources is, is just a pipe dream. Um, you know, we added a position to our restaurant called the Dreamweaver, someone whose only responsibility was to help everyone else in the team bring their ideas to life. A lot of people say, yeah, well, you could afford to do that. I think anyone can afford to do that. We all spend money in different ways. And I never did any traditional marketing because I believed that every dollar I invested into unreasonable hospitality had a much greater impact than anything else I could have done with those dollars. The moment you give people stories to tell about extraordinary experiences. They want to tell those stories endlessly and the people that hear them want to go in and check it out for themselves. So sharing ownership, engaging everyone, scaling your capacity by not limiting what you can do to just the bandwidth of a few people on the top and then giving the people on your team the resources in order to run with the ownership and empowerment you've just given them. But you can also do simple pattern recognition and build a toolkit to support these ideas, right? The two things I just told you, the two stories I just shared were both improvisational. They were reactive, right? It requires hearing someone say something and then come up with an idea that feels appropriate to the thing that you just heard or learned about them. Um, and you can't force those, otherwise they'll feel contrived. But if any business does some simple pattern recognition, they will quickly identify a bunch of recurring moments that happen over and over and over again within their business. And they can prepare for those in advance and build a toolkit. I'll give an example. Um, at our restaurant, there were plenty of people that were in town to go to fancy restaurants, right? Like that's the thing that people do now. They go on vacation to go eat. And because of that, there were plenty of people that would be having lunch or dinner with us and then go straight to the airport to head back home. And so once we started doing pattern recognition and identified that this was a recurring moment, then we had these gorgeous kits produced such that when we knew someone was going to the airport, we could just give them a kit of a bunch of snacks for them to take with them on the plane. Not hastily thrown together in a bag, but in a beautiful custom-made box. Another example, we 
identified that a lot of people got engaged in our restaurant. People do. They do that a lot at every restaurant, right? Or any nice restaurant. Uh, but if you get engaged in a nice restaurant and almost all of them, they'll pour you free champagne. That's the thing they do. By the way, if you ever get engaged in a fancy restaurant and they don't pour you free champagne, you definitely picked the wrong restaurant. <laughs> That's just reasonable hospitality. <laughs> so once we'd isolated that as something that happened over and over again, we could begin to sandbag and elevate our response to it. And so we walked across the park to Tiffany um, and co. Uh, their offices were across the park from us. And I found the CMO and convinced her to give us 1,000 boxes of two champagne flutes. The next time someone got engaged with us, they got free champagne just like they always would have. But they wouldn't realize that, at least not right away, that their glasses were a little bit different than everyone else's glasses. And then when they were done with their champagne, we'd bring the glasses back to the kitchen, wash them, dry them, put them in that baby blue box and give them to them as a gift on their way out, right? That is how you operationalize these, stuff, these things. And that's how you systemize them. You provide resources and ownership for the improvisational gestures. And then you systemize and sandbag the ones that react to the recurring moments once you've identified them. I have like so many different avenues I want to take this conversation. I'm like, I'm like torn. I'm like, which follow-up question first? And I know our, our time is limited here because I, I you're, you're reminding me of, of so many things that I recall from the book. I think uh, I'll, I'll do this one here. One of the best ways to be able to, to systemize it and operationalize it, the example that you just gave of, uh, of the Tiffany champagne glasses, uh, one could argue, well, that's a, that, that for us might be a, a too big of an expense to be able to say it. If we did that all the time, that would be, that would be reckless for us. Uh, you present the 95-5 rule that gives yourself permission to be, whether it's, to, to be what would otherwise be reckless if it wasn't actually measured. Can you tell us about the 95-5 rule? Yes. And first, I'll just say that Tiffany gave us those glasses oh. for free because they recognized that if Tiffany could play that much of an important role in one of the most important moments in someone's life, that those people would buy a lot more stuff for Tiffany from Tiffany over the course of the years to follow. They understood that. Um, 95.5, the rule of 95.5 is basically you manage your money like a maniac 95% of the time, such that 5% of the time you can spend it foolishly. And you put foolishly in, in quotes, right? Because it's not actually foolish at all. The Dreamweaver. That's the 5%. Whatever amount of time the woman spent printing up the, the Ritz cracker menu goes into the 5%, right? Like, and the idea is this, the reason it is classically considered to be foolish is because in most business is what gets measured gets managed. People think that spending money on something where there is no way to clearly define the return on that investment is a foolish investment of money. But if that 5% that you're investing in human emotion and like deepening memories and relationships and giving people the kind of memories that will last a lifetime and Listen, human emotion is hard to quantify. It's hard to measure, but just because you can't measure it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. In fact, I believe it matters more because the return is so vast, it's almost incalculable. Yeah. Um, 
But the reason it's the 95-5 rule and not just the 5% rule is because you have to earn the right to do that. You still need to be a good business person that manages your money wisely such that you unlock the ability to invest in what I believe the highest return items are, which are just making people feel such an immense connection to, to, to your brand. There's this Maya Angelou quote, people will forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, they'll never forget how you made them feel. I think that's the greatest quote ever about hospitality and every dollar you put into the 5% goes straight to how you make people feel. Mm -hmm. So the other question that, the other follow-up question that I was thinking about, and we've, we've got a few minutes, I, it goes back to really the, the culture and the intentionality of the staff member to be able to deliver these types of experiences. And you talk about that you need to make it cool to care. And I think that was, I think that was one of my biggest takeaways from the book. You give this example of, it was, it was soup. It was a, people are, are ordering soup and the way that the soup was delivered and the way that the servers delivered the soup <laughs> was so incredible that they're high-fiving each other when they get back to the kitchen, because it was, it was so cool to be able to pull that off. What, what does it mean for it to be, for it to be cool to care? I just think at the end of the day, we never stop being our high school selves in some small way. And too many leaders think it's unprofessional to talk about what's cool and what's not cool. But I think that unless you define what's cool in the right way, then your organization's not gonna be focusing on the right things. Um, it's no different than being a good parent. Right, like as a good parent, you have a you have a kid. Your entire approach to raising your kid is going to be trying to show them what right looks like and make sure that they believe that's the cool thing. That when their kids are or their friends are trying to get them to do the wrong thing, that they believe in themselves and they celebrate what's right as being cool, not what's wrong as being cool. And I think that's the same thing in a restaurant. Too many leaders want to be friends with their team. And so they don't speak with passion and exuberance about, um, about the things that ultimately make a culture and an organization great. Because they don't think that their team will think they're cool if they do. But people crave leadership. Every leader needs to remember that their energy is meant to impact the people around them, not the other way around. And so if you can not only speak with enough passion about what is right, that everyone else starts to get on board, but then gamify life enough that people have fun pursuing what's right. That's when I believe you can really start to turn a corner. Excellent. Well, Will, before we started recording, uh, we were talking about that we had a lot of ground to cover and that one of the most difficult things about this recording might be <laughs> actually ending the interview because I, I just want to keep talking to you for a very long time. But out of respect for your time uh, and for our audience as well, I do have one final question for you. And that is, how would you sum up your guest experience philosophy in one sentence? Hmm. Remember that in whatever business you're in, what you're ultimately there to do, which is to serve the guest and not your ego. 
with every choice you make. It's not about look at what I can do, but it's about how you make people feel. Those you work with, as well as those you serve. And once you've identified that, the next time you find yourself pursuing one of those people, just try being a bit more unreasonable. Well said, and a great note to end on as well. So Will, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. For everyone out there who is watching and listening, if you enjoyed this interview, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find us. And until next time, we'll see you right here on the Guest Experience Show.